All right, so thanks for coming, and it's good to see you guys back since you're healthy or healthier than you were a week ago. So we got a lot of prayers to go out for our church family because we have people who've been sick just in and around us, and I think overwhelmingly people are not just surviving but thriving because we, I think most of our peers know, take your vitamins, eat well, get outside, breathe some fresh air, don't stay in the house and act like a sickly person. So we're blessed to have people who are smart enough to do that. Um, but we've been in Ephesians, and you guys have missed a few weeks. Catch up with the podcast if you can. And we started Ephesians 2 a couple of weeks ago, um, and this is the third lesson that we're doing out of Ephesians 2. Um, and this one's really cool. I like the way that Paul has, has done this um, with Ephesians 2. Just two verses, 4 and 5. Um, and there's kind of a lot that comes out of these really two very simple verses. So we'll pray and then uh, we'll just kind of get right to it and see what Paul and Jesus has for us out of here. So Father in heaven, we just thank you for who you are and we thank you for these folks who are coming to our home to study with us. And we just ask that you bless those who are not with us today, whether it be for sickness or oversleeping or whatever it is that they're doing. We just ask that you take good care of them this weekend, that you send them back to us next week. Um, Traveling mercies for um, Chad and um, just thinking about Ezra this morning. He wasn't feeling good. So we just ask for all of your blessings on our family here. And we just thank you for who you are. And we thank you for your son's work on the cross. We ask for all of our blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5. Like I said, just two verses. So we... Before I read it, just like kind of the short recap. So we've learned from Paul's letter to Ephesus uh, that before the foundations of the world, God planned for us to be his inheritance and him to be our inheritance. We learned that the power God has over the entire universe to conquer sin and death. We've talked about this in Ephesians 1. He has dominion over all authorities. At the end of Ephesians 1, we went over it. He's going to his feet are going to be on the world, right? Over all the spiritual realms. God is all powerful over all things. And we also learn that he is our fullness and we are his fullness, right? All in all is what it says. And then, but last week, as we got into this part of Ephesians two, we started talking about what we need to do to be saved from death. So we discussed how when we were sinners before we were saved, that we walked following Satan in disobedience that we are following the world, that we are carrying out the passions of our flesh, and that we were children of wrath. Just like everybody else on the planet, we are just wandering around in our sin. So we know that God's powerful enough to save, and we know that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, and we know we're following the ways of the world, but God's got that power to save us out of that. The next question is why? Like, why would God save us out of it? So we know that we're unworthy, we know that God's got the power to do it, but why do it? Why, if we've turned against an almighty creator that's all good, all just, all graceful, and we just turn our backs on him, why would he save us? That doesn't make any sense to me as a human. We know in human relationships, if somebody <laughs> slights you, wrongs you, really does you wrong, basically says, I'm going to come into your house, kick you out. I'm going to be the owner of your house. I want your wife and kids. Get out of the way. You'd be like, mm, no. But God does not. For some reason, when we turn against God, he's like, 
I'm going to fix this. I'm going to make a way to fix this, which is totally antithetical to the human way of life because we're sinful and we don't get it, right? Our simple minds don't get it. So why? Why would this all-powerful God do this? We're rebellious creatures from the dirt is what we are. Um, redeemed to him through the sacrifice of his son. And he does that so that we might be justified before him. So this answer to this question, why, is really two words. It's two words that carry the weight of the entire universe on them. Uh, they were spoken before the pillars of time. They remain timeless. And the two words exemplify God's love for his creation. And it transitions us to realize his plan for salvation. And those two words are, but God. So, out of his power, through our sinfulness, we deserve nothing but God. And here's where we read in verse 4, if you have your Bible, join me. Ephesians 2 verse 4, Paul wrote this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And we're going to stop there and get into verse 6 next week. So, but God. So God established this plan for us, for our salvation. <clears throat> and he carries it out to perfection because of his merciful nature. So this isn't just his desire to save. This is who he is. It's his nature to want to save us. And the text says that he's rich with mercy. So that word rich, <clears throat> it's to have an abundance of. So it comes forth from him. He has an overwhelming amount of mercy. This is something we don't understand as well. Like we talked about this. If somebody came to you and wanted to topple your household, you would not be merciful. For some reason, because of his nature, God is merciful. He wants us to be redeemed to him. <clears throat> He's rich in his mercy towards us because of his great love for us. So two interesting points come out of the language that's utilized in this part of verse 4. I want to bring these up. Two interesting things. So the word which that is in here, when it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great uh, love with which he loved us. So that word, it's a post-positive article in Greek. So um, if you do any studying of that language, you learn that it's, uh, it's really confusing the way it's built. But post-particles are actually an English thing too, right? So really what it is, is that word modifies the noun that's in front of it. So you learn a little bit about reading sentences. I was horrible in English in school. I like the third grade is the hardest five years of my life. And I like sentence structure is not something you've asked me today. Like, where are the nouns? Where are the verbs? Where are the, I barely make it through it. But through studying and repetition, I picked this stuff up. And it's really cool because when you look at Greek, it makes you fully understand. So if it modifies the noun that's in front of it, it makes it past tense. So it makes love past tense. It means that God had this great love for us even before we were sinners. So before the foundations of time. The love which he had for us before all of this happened. So it's part of the plan. He loved us like children, knowing we would fall, knowing that we would falter. He established this plan for our salvation, knowing we would need a way back to him. You see, God's always loved us. He's always loved us. He is always loved me and he's always loved you and i you know what you can kind of equate this to is like when you're married before you have kids it's like you know you're going to love that child 
and the child's not even here yet. And in your mind, you develop plans. If you're a relatively good parent, we, maybe we didn't develop any plans. We, we had some good ideas. <laughs> we knew we should have food in the house. Like, so, you know, it's the little things. But if you think about it, God, before he created us, he knew that he was going to need to save us, not just provide for us, but he was going to provide a savior. Now, in the human case, as parents, because we're built in the Imago Dei, those little things are key indicators of the way God works. Before you and your wife had children, you're like, we're going to love this child. That's why we're doing this. Or even if you didn't plan on having children and you got pregnant, there's this idea in your head in the relationship of a marriage, like, well, we're going to have a baby and it's okay because we're going to love that child. That's the way God, before he created us, he loved us. So the second really interesting point out of the language here is that noun love. I'm going to talk about this and, you know, pastors, preachers, teachers, whatever, have exposited the word love a lot. And I like going over this because it's important. What kind of love is it that drives our God to have this kind of mercy? As you know, the Bible uses four different types of words or four different words for love. It's used in the New Testament. Okay, so you've got a storge, which is empathetic love. It's like the family love. Uh, you know, that's the love like we kind of have for each other. It's storge love. It's not intimate love, but it's, it's, it's still love. We love one another like a family. We're empathetic towards each other. If you're sick, I feel bad. If somebody in our group needed money, we'd pitch our money in. It's empathetic love towards the group. And then there's philia or phileo, depending on what tense you want to use, a bunch of different tenses. But that's like friendly love, right? Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. So we can talk about that later. But it's that idea of loving people like a brother, loving people like a friend. So it's like a little bit deeper, right? It's like in our community, there's more like a phileo type love than there is uh, the storge type love. And then there's eros, where we get the word erotic. And that's that romantic type love. But it also, it can cross over from romantic into the kind of the sinful side of love as well. That would be eros as well. But in this case, it's that agape, which we've talked about agape love numerous times. Just specifically in this verse, it's agapeo. And this is the love of God, the love of a father towards his children and Christ's love uh, to us and our love to him. And it's like, it, that's where that merciful love comes out. So are we not merciful towards our own children? Do we not want the best for them and create a safe, loving environment for them? And we cannot, we can't specifically recreate this type of love towards our children because we don't have God's nature, but we see evidences of it that play out in our love for our kids. It's really quite hard to understand for the believer and the non-believer alike, the state of being that we're in prior to salvation because as children are of wrath, we're essentially unlovable. <laughs> you think about that for a second. Um, remember back to Galatians and we went through this in Galatians five. Um, and I'll talk about this. And this is a tough one for the world to hear. It says now the works of the flesh are evident. So this is people who are sinful. This is us before we're saved. <clears throat> The works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things 
like these. And Paul says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the sinful state you're in. By receiving God's grace, by receiving his love, all of that is overcome in his mighty power to save. And if you're anything like me, um, you can basically say that every one of those transgressions that Paul discusses are part of your former life. <laughs> like if you were to take a look at my life before Carol and I were saved, uh, almost every one of those I've been a part of at some point in my life. Probably all of them. I'm not going to say maybe. I'm going to just go ahead and say all of them. I have definitely walked on that side of things. So this is the thing that makes it hard to understand. Why, if I am so rebellious and walking on that side of things, would God say, right, I'm cool with redeeming you to me? You are unlovable. Consider one of your kids being such a horrible, horrible person. And this happens in life, right? That you're just like, I cannot have you around anymore. God gives that opportunity to redeem them, but not because the child does some sort of work to get back into the house, but because God goes out and reaches them, which is pretty amazing. It's like, I know you don't deserve to be in my house. You're going to try to tear it down, but I'm going to fix your heart so you don't do it. It's pretty amazing. Now, of course, we don't have the power to fix the heart of our children. God has that power to fix our heart. But like, it just blows my mind. that is When I look at all those things that Paul talks about in Galatians, I'm like, why would he fix me? I was pretty rough as a kid for years. And then through the sanctification process, you start to fix things. But even the first number of years of our marriage, we weren't saved until we were married for a while. I mean, I was totally unlovable to the point where Carol probably would have left me a hundred times over had we not found Jesus, but, or Jesus found us, I should say. But, so our world's filled with this stuff too, right? It's filled with this sinful nature. Look at the world around us. It's filled with all these horrible things, and yet it seems to embrace them in a good way. This is really weird. I got to thinking about this yesterday just with all the junk that's going on in the world with all the extreme sexual perversion that's going on and the weirdness with like people's gender and the, uh, all the stuff that just like the world looks at and they're like, they look at Christians and they're like, you just hate people. You have a phobia. It's like, I don't want to hate anybody. You can do whatever you want. And I'll sit across the table, and have a cup of coffee with you any day of the week. I don't hate you. I disagree with you. I mean, I'm not going to pick at your weird party. I just disagree with your way of life. But listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 5.20. It says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. It really is backwards world. That's what we live in. The sinful nature of the world through the work of Satan is basically saying that's good when it's definitely not good. It's evil he's calling good. This is what the world around us is doing. They reject God's mercy and grace and they accept the sinfulness as good. And it's confusing after you've been saved really to understand why somebody would want to live in it. And that's the thing that's become tougher for me is, you know, if I could turn back time, the guys that I had contact with and, you know, on teams and in platoons and stuff like that, I wish I could go back and be the person I am now towards them because I really was a horrible example of a human towards many of them, especially with extreme alcohol and drug abuse and my lack of care for the world and running around with women. 
And I wish I could go back and be like, hey man, there's something better for us. But I didn't. And now that's a part of me that I drag with me. And I think, gosh, if I could just go back, especially, you know, in my first two platoons, three of those dudes ended up taking their own life. And I'm like, what if? I don't know, but I just think, what if? What if somebody had delivered that hope to them? Maybe they wouldn't be, there wouldn't be families that didn't have dads around. All of them are married with kids. And I'm like, gosh, what? It just blows my mind. And it makes me think, like, how does the world not see this hopefulness? Now that I'm on this side of it, I think, why would somebody not want their kids to be saved? Like, I look at her and I think, why would I not want her to have paradise forever? Forget about me. Like, why would I not want her to have paradise forever? If she crosses over today, I don't want her going to hell. And that's reason enough for me to share hope with her. And I don't, it blows my mind that the world will walk around in their sinful, drunken, orgy-filled, hateful craziness, and they've got kids, and they're like, I don't care where my kids go. That blows my mind. You don't love your kids. That's the, no, I love my, no, you don't. You don't care where your kids go. Save yourself. I don't care. You don't love your children if you're willing to even allow that to be a possibility. That blows my mind. I, I just don't see it. I love my kids way too much to not tell them that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father. That's it. We move on to verse 5. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So Paul's going back to that word dead, which we talked about two weeks ago. We were dead in our trespasses. We are literally spiritually dead, no ability to save ourselves, just like a corpse can't climb up out of the grave and walk around with all the living people. So you, when you're spiritually dead, cannot have access to those who are living spiritually. So that term again, but God, here's where it comes up, but God, although it's not used specifically in this verse, think of it for a second. We were dead, but God made us alive together, right? So there's this word in Greek that's really long. Don't try to memorize it, but if you, this, this word made us alive. So that whole thing is made us alive together. Um, and it's senedzuipuisen, and it's this really long word. It's a big pile. If you look at it in the word Greek, it's even hard to figure the letters out. Senedzuipuisen. It's the word here for made us alive. And it's really cool because when we talk about, we talked about Galatians being broken into two sections. The first section and the second session section is the first section is indicative and the last section is imperative. So indicatives are, this is God's nature and imperative is, this is how we respond to it. So we have no effect on the indicative, that's God. And the imperative is how we respond to it, right? Indicative it comes from God's nature. So there's no imperative here. There's no like, this is what you need to do. This whole word, this whole made alive together in Christ is indicative. It's about God's nature. It indicates who God is. He has the ability to make you alive again in Christ. Because there's no imperative, it means it's all his. You see, Mary, I told you about these tenses of these words and how important they are and how they work and how in English, like we can't, 
really get the whole feeling of it. See, if you were listening to Paul say this to you or reading it out of his letter, what they would get out of it being an imperative verb is they'd get, oh, I can't do anything. God has to make me alive again with Christ. And that's really kind of the crux of it. So he concludes with this statement in here, by grace you have been saved on the heels of this imperative. Which is awesome. We can't do anything. We'll talk about that in just a second as we get ready to close. It'll say, um, one of the things I wanted to go over is depending on the version of the Bible you're using, it, you might notice parentheses, parentheses around that last portion of it about by grace you have been saved. NASBs, ESVs, KJVs, New King James, they use brackets and they usually mean that something isn't found in the Greek. For a multitude of different reasons, it might have been put in there. Some people like to say it creates problems for the text. It doesn't really. You just need to study it and figure it out. Um, in this case, there's parentheses and they're used for emphasis. When the translators put that in there and they put parentheses on it, what they really wanted to do is have the reader catch this part as the sum of how salvation works. It's really important that it only comes from God's grace and God's grace alone. There's nothing we can do. You see, in Acts 15, 11 at the Jerusalem Council, the, all the apostles get together and they're discussing their mission. And Peter stands up and he makes this statement about bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. He says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus. They had all walked with Christ all these years. And what they come up with is the sum total of all the work that is done is by God's grace. Not by something they do, not by how the mission runs, not by anything else, just God's grace. So over the next couple of weeks, I want to start looking at something as a group and we'll get this out. It'll go out on the podcast. So if people listen to it that didn't, weren't able to make it today and it's the five solas. And I think this is pretty cool because it's foundational, right? These are great truths of the Christian faith. So this is what they are through the Protestant reformation. They started to develop the, like, what are the truths about how salvation works? So you got these guys like Luther and Zwingli and Knox and Brucer and these other reformationalists who were like, kind of fighting against the Catholic Church. And they were fighting against the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church had a lot of kind of stuff that came with salvation. Like you got to pay indulgences to the church. You got to go to confession. You know, you're going to go to purgatory. You can pay money to try to get a family member out of purgatory and into heaven. They were all, there was all this kind of stuff that came with salvation. And these reformers were like, now that the Bible was becoming more widespread, and not just held onto by the church in Latin, they were like, hold on, none of that stuff's in the Bible. We need to get the word out about this. And what kind of comes out of that is these five truths. I mean, a lot of stuff comes out of it, but these are things directly related to salvation that they, that they, they get. And of course, it's five solas, the five only things, is because it's Latin, and that's the language they were using. So it doesn't really become a mantra, until like 1965, where this guy, uh, Johann Baptist Metz, kind of sticks them all together. But they were all there, kind of separately. And this is what they are. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola Fide, Faith alone. Sola Gratia, Grace alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria, it's to the glory of God alone. So if you think about this for a second... 
if you stick them together in a sentence, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And we get all that information from the scripture alone. So no man comes in and gives us a new gospel. No man comes in and tells us how to be saved. No man can add to salvation, take from salvation, make you pay for salvation. Only salvation comes through grace, by faith, in Christ, to God's glory. And that's it. So we just talked about today in this lesson, the basis for solo gratia. We talked about the basis for grace alone, right? And this is this huge rebuke of the Catholic Church becomes a really important part of us understanding what Christians who lived through that Catholic reign were just holding on to by their fingertips for years. I mean, people were burned to death and crucified for saying this out loud for a thousand years, right? So people, some people think the Catholic Church maintained Christianity for 12, 1300 years. That is not the truth. The church was alive and well, just it wasn't the dominant Roman church in the world. It was alive and well. Now these truths, because we're all able to carry a Bible around with us, when somebody says you're saved by grace alone, you can go look it up. You don't have to rely on a priest or a preacher to tell you. So we're going to continue to work on those. I want to repeat them over the last number of the weeks. And this is why I kind of talked about this. Like when we first started meeting is like, you need to have a confession. It's good to be able to tell people, do you know why you're saved and how you're saved? Yes, I do know. <laughs> do you know why you love Jesus? Yes, I know why. Why is it important to do this? Because it is the gospel. It is when people say, you know, why do you believe what you believe? You can say, this is why. Well, how do you believe you're saved? This is why. Have you ever heard of the five solas? I mean, even if you don't remember it word for word, you can be like, hey, we talked about this and I believe that because it's all in there. They'll go look it up, trust me. I mean, you just, you start to build this confession inside your head and you're not going to get it perfect and that's okay. God tells us the Holy Spirit will do the work, not you, so that's all right. But it helps develop that apology, that confession. It's the foundation of the hope that we have in Jesus. So, what do we get out of Paul's words for us this morning? All right, this is how I'm going to close this out. It's extremely important for us to understand grace for two reasons. Two reasons. It doesn't matter how bad you think you were or you are. It doesn't matter how bad you think you were or how bad you are. Paul is clear in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All. The word all in Greek it means all. It means everybody, right? So all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No person is better than anybody. This is fantastic news. This is amazing news because this means that those, you know, they call them PKs, preacher's kids, those kids who grew up in church and they're like perfect and they get straight A's in high school and they're on the football team and then like they grow up to be a youth pastor and you're like, oh my gosh, look how amazing that family is. Like that kid is no more saved than your kid who's like a complete jerk and walks in sin their whole life and then they get saved. Not better than anybody else. Me who walked as a horrible sinful person for many, many years of my life, God saved and I am saved. There's not a partially saved or a maybe saved or halfway saved. You're just saved. You get to enter into the kingdom of heaven to live forever and ever with Jesus Christ. Um, and be part of his inheritance. It's pretty amazing. That's the first point. It doesn't matter how bad you were or how bad you are. God saved you, period. The work is done. Here's the second really good point. You cannot do the work. 
You cannot do the work. You should not try to do the work. You should not expect others to do the work. And when you fail, if you're anything like me, you fail daily, multiple times daily, it doesn't matter. Not that we shouldn't strive to do good. Not that we shouldn't strive to do well in our marriage, our love for our kids, in our community, in our church, in our life. Not that we shouldn't be good citizens, be good representatives of the gospel. But we know that we're not good enough. We just know it because God said it. So we rely on him because it's he alone who makes us alive. And that, my friends, is good news. So, Father, we just we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for your son, Jesus, and we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your grace that abounds, that you are rich with, because we know, Lord, that we are dead in our sin. We were dead in our sin, and that it is through your work on the cross. It is through you reaching into our hearts. It is through you changing us from dead to alive that we are able to be your inheritance and we just um, we thank you for that lord we are humbled that you would choose us to be a part of your family when we are undeserving when we are sinful when we are dead we thank you for his work on the cross we ask that you would make this something that we think about lord today and throughout the week that we just are humbled by your great work but that also motivates us lord that we might tell people that your grace abounds, that you are rich with it, and that you want to save people. We need to reach people and tell them about the hope we have in you so that they might be saved, Lord. We thank you for that work you did on the cross. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and we ask that you send us away today loving you, realizing our position in you. We are thankful for all these things in the holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.